Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, I speak with Caroline Coates and Terry Kearsey about their work with the charity Harry's Hat. We talk about why the charity was set up, the challenges and benefits of being founder-led, and the checks and balances that the board provide to ensure that the charity grows and runs effectively. Both Caroline and Terry have heaps of charity experience and expertise, and I was delighted to catch them in their busy lives for a very quick charity chat. Both were very open about their backgrounds, and Caroline was generously candid about her experience, which we really appreciate. I've no doubt that you will find this conversation both useful and emotionally engaging, and I very much hope that this will be the first of many future interviews. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here are Caroline Coates and Terry Kearsey talking with me about Harry's Hat. So I'm delighted to be joined by Caroline Coates, founder and CEO, and Terry Kearsey, chair of Harry's Hat. Hello, Caroline. Hello, Terry. Hello. Hi there. So, Caroline, what led you to set up the Harry's Hat charity in the first place? I'm a mum of four. Um, you can probably see how haggard I look. So, yeah, I'm a good mum. And Harry is my fourth child. Um, he, by the time I was expecting Harry, I kind of thought I had motherhood sort of ping. This is going to be a walk in the park. I know what I'm doing. Um, and it was all going well until my 36 week pregnancy. Right. And I'm an older mother, so I was a bit grumpy and didn't fancy going through all that again. So said, fancy, you know, I want to scan and I want this baby, you know, to come out as a C-section. Mm. And they were a bit, mm, right then. So, so I went along for my scan, not thinking that, you know, they were going to find anything other than just I was a bit older. It went that sort of horrible, quiet, the whole room went very quiet. Lots of people mm. came in um, and they found that the baby, as, as he was at that point, um, had a huge, very odd looking head. In fact, I think they said that he had a complete loss of brain component. Um, yeah. We were sent that day to a specialist hospital um, and they umdenard and then they found that he had a con- um, an arachnoid cyst and arachnoid cysts mm. can go on to cause hydrocephalus. So right. he, he was born with hydrocephalus. Um, Originally, we were told, crikey, you know, despite the fact that a quarter of his brain has this cyst in, he's doing very well. So go home and enjoy your miracle baby. And we were, oh, we trot. Um, and two weeks later, we realised that his head was growing quite quickly. Um, and that is the first key sign that the, you know, the condition he has has caused hydrocephalus because um, mm. it's, it's about having excess fluid. Right. Um, so really, the rest was history. We, we set it up. Um, because those are gaps that we found. Now there's all some brilliant other organisations working in the field, providing advice and emotional support and championing mm. the needs of um, people with these conditions. But it really shocked me that the only option for Harry was a shunt, which is a invasive device inserted in his brain, which wow. dra- um, drains the fluid and basically keeps him alive. Um, so when he was eight weeks, we, in fact, this picture's out on social media today, which we, because it's Hydrocephalus Awareness Week, so it's quite timely that we're doing oh, okay. this. okay, right. Um, 
of handing over our eight-week-old baby um, into surgery, mm. not knowing what we we're going to get back, really. Um, and we were told that the shunt that was going into his brain to keep him alive was, um, it was first in, uh, invented in 1963, I think, <laughs> um, by Vizali, the author Roald Dahl. Now, it was invented it, by Roald Dahl. Yes, uh, Roald Dahl's child was also injured in a serious accident. Mm. Not him alone, I hasten to add, but he obviously worked with some neurosurgeons. And basically sure. the design came up on, um, you know, hastily put together. Now, shunts have moved on a little bit, but they haven't moved on. There is, there is just no cure for mm. the, the condition. Um, and that's really shocking thing to to have to deal with and in 50% of cases shunts will block within the first two years of insertion uh, I think Harry made it to three months before he's blocked again wow. and the only option then is life-saving invasive treatment more surgery mm. by the time he was one he's had um, four major brain surgeries Good and tree. lots and lots of um, CT scans MRIs all all with a tiny baby, which requires general anaesthetic and, mm. and that sort of thing. And, you know, ultimately the the outcome, he's a happy, normal little, normal and, you know, all, all children are, di are different. Um, but he's a, he's a happy little boy. But we live with this condition sort of hanging over our heads constantly. Mm. Um, and the other thing we then found is that many of the wonderful frontline nurses who work with him and some of the specialist nurses, um, often if they want to access training, they're having to pay for that training themselves. Now, I found that really shocking. That is shocking. Because if, in my humble opinion, it, if, if you want to improve awareness and understanding of the condition and so improve patient care, mm. then, you know, you want to make sure that everybody can access training and networking and conferences, because that's where that learning comes from. Yeah. Um, hydrocephalus uh, affects about one in a thousand babies are born with it every year. So if you look at the last, um, you know, the 2019 census, for example, in England and Wales, mm. that's over 650 babies just born with it, the con congenital, congenital side of it. But children and adults can also go on to develop it. And we don't have any statistics around that. So it's a lot of people are affected by it. And obviously, it doesn't just affect the individual child, it affects the family, mm. it affects, you know, it's had a huge impact on Harry's siblings and you know I don't suggest that you stick hydrocephalus into Google because some of the images that you will come across is, is really difficult. In most children with the condition you're supported by a specialist hospital but if your child gets ill and, it, and they have signs that their shunt is blocked which is a life-threatening emergency they'll mm. be taken to their local hospital and that can be really difficult when you're trying to deal with the two different centres and you're talking to people who are perhaps not as aware of the condition mm. as I said it's around one in a thousand babies every year who are born with a condition whereas that's a lot of children mm. it's still not something that most GPs see on a daily basis it's not something that many frontline workers see on a daily basis so there's still a lot of misinformation and lack of awareness around that. 
and I think what really the, the, the final straw for me was I took Harry one day to a baby clinic and you'll be really surprised to learn that with, with children with this condition you monitor their heads um, every week to look for growth now a centimeter growth in their head is is a is a sign that you know the, the head is growing too quickly and that means that there's excess fluid um the head's measured using a tape measure which looks a bit like the ones you can get from ikea right so she can yeah it's not very reassuring so as you can imagine everybody measures the head slightly different mm. now a couple of millimeters difference is is significant so you want to make sure that people are measuring it correctly mm. um i went to a um a, a baby clinic once and and his head wasn't measured quite correctly now i wouldn't blame the individual that did that in in any way shape or form these clinics are very busy there's lots mm. of people but when i took him home and i remeasured it myself and sent the measurement through it was clear that it jumped so i feel that there's a lot more education that needs to be done on the sort of um you know frontline workers as well whereas people are aware of the condition they might not necessarily be aware of the significance of, of, of you know jumps and also measuring the head in the in the same place for the child each time so consistency of the person that does it is really important And when you were when you were looking at setting up the charity, Caroline, was it was it a sense of were you looking to see what presumably you were looking to see what support was out there for you and your family yeah. as the first step and then realizing yeah. that there wasn't enough support and that you wanted to do something about it? There, there's some brilliant support in terms of the emotional um, practical support. Hmm. And we really don't want to reinvent the wheel, the wheel with that our issue and where we sort of fit into to the sort of wider picture is that we want to collaborate to look at research so that longer term our, our biggest aim our hope through all this is that one day that shunts and invasive brain surgery will not be the only option mm. we'd love there to be a cure but we're very aware we can't do that on our own and when we were looking at what the charity and we were looking at the needs we were finding that the sort of lack of progress is, is is quite a big thing and I think it was it really shocked us that you know to hand your child over and realize there isn't a cure we're just going to have to learn to live with this hmm. and the the device in his brain could block at any moment meaning that he needs really urgent life-saving further brain surgery it is it, quite hard hard to deal with yeah. And then on top of that, we realised that despite the support that I could get as an individual parent, there's huge lack of awareness. I mean, let's be honest, I couldn't spell it. I mean, trust my child to go and get a condition that I can't even spell. Yeah, I never heard of it before. And most yeah. people we come across had never heard of it. We were sort of the only people in the village with this condition. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we've had um, paramedics, obviously we, we've had quite a few ambulances to the house. We've had paramedics to the house that can't say it properly. Right. And that's not them, that's not their fault. That's because there's not a, enough awareness. So it was those things we were starting to see as, as mm. we journeyed through Harry's, frankly, terrifying first year on this planet. I can imagine. I can imagine. Absolutely. 
it's 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 shocking and it's it's harrowing it's a harrowing story really what what when you were setting up the charity what would you have said were the challenges that you you started to face and uh, and how did you deal with some of those challenges and how are you still dealing with those that remain i think if i'm honest the biggest challenge for me is that you know this harry's hydrocephalus awareness trust carries my little boy's name harry is my child so taking the emotion out of it is quite challenging and i don't think it'll it'll ever happen in my i mean i've i've worked in the voluntary sector all my working life in in, in fairly senior roles mm. and fortunately for me the roles that i occupy in my day job i've never been directly affected by so if for example we get a no from a funder. I, I, I can take that on the chin and I, I can look at that and think, right, how, how can we work a bit harder? Um, but if somebody says no to me with Harry's hat, Terry will, will probably uh, uh, back me up that I'm probably not the best person to stand there chin shaking if somebody turns around <laughs> and says no. Um, I, I have to be quite self-reflective and mm. and it, it is difficult. Um, and I, I think that's a challenge that I wasn't quite ready for. Mm. Um, my ugly mug is is splashed over lots of stuff with, with Harry. You know, we've shared something today on social media, which is really deeply personal, but mm. we wanted to get across, actually from a father's perspective, we showed a picture of Matt, Harry's dad, holding him. Yeah. And that's really hard. If someone doesn't like it, it's like, how dare you not like our post? That's horrific. You know? <laughs> Um, so it's it's keeping that side of it and and yeah. and learning to be reflective and learning to be that you know what what's happening to Harry and my family, lots of bad things happen to lots of families, and basically giving the advice to myself that I give to my teams in my day job. Um, but you know, I, I'm not beyond being quite stroppy when somebody says no. <laughs> And and it is. It can feel like it can feel a bit of a re rejection. I think. Um, and and as, as a story of that was um, a couple of years ago. My um, eight year old and I were in Waitrose, and you know they have the green tokens. That yeah. You could, so, so Harry's hat was selected as this for the green tokens, and it was sort of slow motion how it happened. I was holding my eight-year-old by his hand and I watched him because he was very proud that, you know, that the charity had was was here in his local supermarket. And this poor woman, unbeknownst to her, dropped her token, but she dropped it in a different charity box. And I just saw him and just ran towards me. He said, but that's my brother's charity. Why are you not supporting it? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Really hurt. And she looked mortified. <laughs> And you know, it, it, it's a lesson in life, isn't it? Mm. Not everybody is going to be feel as passionate about the cause that you represent. As, and I was trying to, I was apologising to this woman and saying, I'm so sorry. And and trying to give my eight-year-old, well, my, my now eight-year-old, the same advice that I, I try to give myself, which is, you know, people have all sorts of different things that they're passionate about. If hydrocephalus isn't the thing that they're as passionate about that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing a bad job it just means that them as you know they have they have other things but but it's it's an interesting position to be in
new for your family in terms of are you, it sounds like you have to really um, be very open and talk about your story and, and that you are as part of the Harry's Hat charity that mm. you set up. But is that, does that go against the grain for your family? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it goes against the grain much more because I've always worked for, um, for quite a long time, I, I worked for domestic abuse charities and I currently work for um, a sexual abuse charity. Um, when I was working for domestic abuse charities, my identity was actually kept quite behind the scenes for, for obvious reasons. Um, I've never been a great one for sharing my story, so this has been particularly difficult. Um, we're just different, I suppose. Matt, my husband, is you know he he's never been a great personal sharer of of uh, your own story. So, mm. but we we felt this was particularly important, and we we felt that if we didn't tell our story, then you know how could anyone relate to it um, yeah. if we just hide behind the sort of statistics and things like that. It is difficult. We, we've we've done some amazing research recently, and we'll we'll stick that out on social media and might get a few likes. We stick a picture of Harry and Mass out. We'll get lots of engagement, yeah. but you know that that comes at a, a a personal cost as well. So it's it's an interesting position to be in, but I I don't think it's very different from a lot of people who are representing causes, and it's also a crowded marketplace if you like as well. So. Terry, so uh, we've we've spoken to Caroline about being the CEO and the founder of Harry's Hat. You're the chair of Harry's Hat. What, what's your background and how did you become chair? So my background um, was that my career actually started in events and marketing. Um, and I've got over 14 years experience in events and marketing, including corporate and charity campaigns, as well as major donor and fundraising events. Um, I've actually been involved in charity work since I was about 16 years old and made the career move into the sector um, in 2015. Uh, I met Caroline through my role and we bonded straight away over our values and love for all things charity. Uh, and when she had Harry and started Harry's Hat, I was asked to volunteer my time to help give the charity a brand and provide the crucial support it needed to establish as a new charity. I was then invited to join the board of trustees and I then went on to become chair of trustees last year. Wow. And was this your was your first trustee chair role? Yes, it was. Yeah. Before then, I'd, I'd done lots of volunteering. I'd arranged lots of, you know, I was when I was 16 at school, I was arranging charity events. So I've, I've been doing it. It's in my I feel like it's in my blood and I've been doing it from the start. But this was my first real personal attachment to a charity. We've we've spoken uh, in, on the podcast before a few times with uh, with the likes of Deborah Alcock Tyler about trustees and the split between the board and the executive in terms of uh, roles and responsibilities. And for a small charity like Harry's Hat, how do you navigate what is board and what is executive areas of responsibility? Um, I actually worked with Deborah in my last role, um, and I've heard the various podcasts, uh, they're brilliant. Um, she sat on the board of trustees at the organisation um, that I used to work for and kindly offered me advice when I joined the board at Harry's Hat. 
Um, her advice included, uh, you know, being open and honest as a trustee and to act in the best interests of the organisation and its beneficiaries. So, um, you know, really vital advice from someone who's got lots of experience in the sector. Mm. Um, at Harry's Hat, we have the added challenge that as a young and small charity, some of our trustees also act as volunteers as we have no paid staff. Caroline is our volunteer executive and takes on the responsibility of the leadership and the day-to-day -day running of the charity, whereas the board take responsibility for the overall strategic direction and the effective governance of the charity. So Caroline advises the board and provides options and her view on the best way forward. It's then our job to challenge those ideas and decide on the best way forward so that Caroline can implement that and lead the organisation. Um, I, you know, I completely agree with uh, lots of the um, advice that Deborah's given. Um, certainly, you know, when charity governance goes wrong, you end up causing real damage to people and the cause that you're serving. So we work hard as a team to ensure that we understand exactly what it is that Harry's Hat has set out to achieve, to ensure that everyone within the board and the executive teams understands that, and that also the resources within the charity are managed properly. Caroline, as the founder of a charity, do you think it's possible to find colleagues who can be as passionate as you are? And how important do you think this is? Around a little bit, I've certainly got colleagues, and, and, and Terry is an absolute prime example of the amount of time and effort and, and passion she, she gives. So I've certainly got colleagues who work as hard as I do. That's without doubt. Um, can they be as passionate? That, that's difficult to say and I'm I'm not sure it would be good if we all were because ultimately it's myself and my husband that has to hold Harry when he goes down to surgery mm. it's ultimately us who who feel so passionate about say the shunt developments and and wanting the cure because we're the ones that hold hand our baby over so I think it's very important that we surround ourselves with people who are completely on board with what we do and work tirelessly and are very, very dedicated and passionate that can take that step back. Terry is brilliant at telling me, hang on, you're, this is too close to you. You know, we've had meetings with, with, with people. Um, we had one relatively recently and they weren't particularly supportive. Um, Terry can reflect on that. She can pull the really good points of the meeting mm. and she can say to me, yeah, the, this is the bits that we're going to learn. This is the bits that we're going to improve on. Exactly how I do in my day jobs. And she can look at me and say, OK, that's a bit hurtful for you. So you need to step back. And the whole board is very, very keen on looking at the welfare of us as a family unit as well mm. and saying, I'm also very concerned that a lot of um, when I'm looking at strategic direction and when I'm talking about the charity a lot, I often always refer back to Harry because he he's our the, the reason that that we did it in the first place. But as we grow and as we, we find our feet in terms of, of, of how we talk about our work and where the biggest challenges are, I want to make sure that what we're doing is reflective of all children affected by hydrocephalus, not just the little baby that's running around behind me. So, 
you know, I, I think actually having a balance of that is really, really important. Terry, where does your motivation to take on the role of chair for Harry's Hat come from? You've spoken about your experience. You've got lots of charity experience. What do you find most fulfilling about this this role as well? I've always thrived on taking on charity work and I got so much job satisfaction when I moved from the corporate sector into the charity sector. Um, I've known Harry since he was born and watching him go through surgery after surgery and seeing how his life and, and the rest of the family's life is affected by the condition that has no cure and has little in the way of treatment advances really inspired me to want to change that. My motivation comes from wanting to ensure Harry and others living with hydrocephalus are not limited by the condition and can go on to live long and healthy lives. I'm really lucky to lead such a fantastic and motivated team. Um, I've had the pleasure of getting to know all of our trustees and our volunteers and seeing the wealth of skill and experience that they bring and seeing the charity evolve from scratch and seeing what it will grow into is really exciting. And knowing that all the work that we're doing is helping families in a similar situation to our friends who founded the charity for me is simply amazing. And you can't put a price on that. And would you, rec- would you recommend becoming a trustee or a chair to anyone? Or do you think that uh, it, it might not be the right thing for, I suppose it, it takes a lot of thinking through, does it, in terms of the commitment and everything that you've, that you've made, Terry? Yeah, it does. I, I would recommend, um, I recommend to anyone working within the, the, the charity sector that it's a brilliant thing to take on. You know, if you're in the charity sector, you've, you've already got charity in your blood. Um, it's one of those sectors that once you're in, you're in. Um, certainly for, for anyone in any uh, leadership positions in charities, I think it's vitally important that they go on to, to take on trustee roles. I certainly saw a huge difference in my last role as soon as I became trustee for Harry's Hat. It opened my eyes to um, to so much more about that charity and about what I was doing and what I could bring. And, you know, it it gave me the gave me the finance background. It gave me the governance background. It was it was hugely eye opening. And I think it helps you as an individual to be able to to, you know, do your day job better as well as the volunteering that you're doing. I think I think for the good of causes and for the good of beneficiaries you need to be the right person to be a trustee because it isn't for everyone but if it's something that you can do and it's something that you can bring skill and expertise to a charity that could really do with your help I think it's certainly something that that people should consider. Caroline We've spoken to several guests about management cultures in organisations, guests including Helen Molinos and John Dunford about non-hierarchical leadership and co-op governance structures, respectively. Would you see Harry's Hat ever adopting this type of structure in the future? I mean, definitely. Uh, how we are, how Harry's Hat is at the moment, we we have to have a non-hierarchical management structure. It, it wouldn't work Um uh, if if we didn't and even as we grow and we we seek to take on paid employees to 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 run the charity um i mean one, one of our aims is that i i take on a different role within the organization 
So because reflecting on, on the issues of, of listening when to, to other families and, and those sorts of things, I think um, a CEO role, who's one step? Somebody who can be one step um, detached from the cause would, would probably actually be really beneficial for us. And, and when we are able to do that, then yes, we would definitely seek for it to be a sort of non-hierarchical. And, and I mean, one of the reasons I, I feel quite passionately about that is in my day jobs, I, I've run quite large teams. Um, I think one of my career regrets, <laughs> you know, I've made many mistakes in my career, but one of my many mistakes was working, uh, running quite a large fundraising team. And I can remember we sort of talked about engaging with the whole team and setting the budgets uh, for the forthcoming year, which obviously then translates to targets. And then if I'm honest, we kind of went off as a leadership team and did it ourselves and then came back and presented the budget to the team I managed. And they were rightly really cross and really quite combative about it um, because they didn't understand where we got the figures from. And mm. if we'd engaged with them from day one, or take, take we away if I'd engaged properly with them from day one. Let's not put it onto anyone else. It was my fault. I would have got much more buy-in and I didn't get the buy-in because we just presented it as a fait accompli. Um, and I took the feedback from that, which was quite brutal. <laughs> Hopefully I've learned that doesn't it doesn't work. If you're asking people to go out and deliver strategies, especially in the times that we're living in at the moment, which mm. is really challenging, they've got to own that they can't just have it dumped on them from a higher thing so you know I, I think that's something we would always aim, aim to work towards Caroline Coates Terry Kiersey thank you for contributing to Charity Chats thank you for having us thank you for having us big thank you there to Caroline Coates and Terry Kiersey. This conversation is a stark reminder that while the charity sector exists in multiple forms with charities of many different types and sizes, the foundation for many of these is a group of volunteers working together to tackle a challenge, a problem, an injustice, or in the case of Harry's hat, a severe medical condition. A founder of a charity is the initial driving force spurned on by their own lived experience, consciously and unconsciously harnessing the passion that comes from this. The fervent desire and need to change the world for ourselves and our children is a vital tool in the fight for space in the busy charity market. To find volunteers to join in the governance and furtherance of strategic planning and seek funders to move the charity along the path that will ultimately reach the goal of changing the world in some way. Leading the charge for any worthy cause is a heroic endeavour, but one that calls for sacrifice. Caroline and her family have put so much into telling the story of their son, Harry, in order to help him, but also the many hundreds and thousands of other children with hydrocephalus. Terry and her fellow trustees must balance supporting the passion of Caroline, who is both the CEO and the mother of a child that the charity is seeking to support, with the street strategic and risk weighing measures that are crucial to ensuring that Caroline and her fellow volunteer efforts are amplified by the support of a professional structure. Perhaps you're listening to this with your own ideas of setting up a charity or group to add value to the extensive work being carried out by charities and other groups across the UK and indeed the world. 
do this well for those that need your help and the fragility of the situations that increasing numbers of people are in require you to have a concerted professional and above all else selfless and kind approach perhaps you're seeking to support the likes of Caroline and Terry and one of the many other great causes out there and join with the many thousands of dedicated people who spend valuable time on helping to further a progressive cause consider becoming a trustee and developing your own knowledge approach personality and value in the service of others charity chat will be with you whatever you decide to start or continue doing as contributors to a healthier and better society for all so thank you dear listener for getting this far with us we hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast we'd love to hear from you either way all of our contact information can be found on our website charitychat.org.uk also please do consider leaving us a review on your podcast app we're on most of them now it's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors our platinum sponsor charity people for enabling us to share insights expertise and best practice across the sector Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aximit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Please do keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.